Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and I'm joined today by Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, this is an episode that we recorded a little while ago to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash StarQuest for their generosity in making this and all our shows at StarQuest possible. We gave them early exclusive access, but now we're sharing it with you to show you one of the benefits of being a patron. So. Please enjoy this show. Welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, which is made possible by you, our patrons on Patreon. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, we're always looking for ways to thank you, our patrons, for your generosity in making all our shows on StarQuest possible. And this is one of those ways. We reached out to you and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we got many great responses, so many. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, we're going to be talking about psychedelic machine elves, also cryptozoological animals, speaking with spirits, by location, uh, where twins get their souls, the Bible code, what are pagan gods, and more. Excellent. So our first question is an audio patron question, and it comes from Chris from Maine, and I'll play it now. Hi, Jimmy and Don. This is Chris from Maine. I was wondering if you think that the descriptions of the nativity of Jesus in the apocryphal Gospels are describing a macro scale Bose-Einstein condensate event, which could explain the lack of childbirth pain experienced by Mary. Thanks. Enjoy the show. So, um... It's interesting. There are apocryphal gospels like the infancy gospel of James, also called the Proto-Evangelium of James, though I'm phasing out that word because these days it's better known as the infancy gospel of James. And that's a lot easier for people to understand than Proto-Evangelium that that talk about circumstances connected with Jesus's birth. And in the I'm not sure entirely which of all the phenomena uh, Chris is thinking about. But in the Infancy Gospel of James, there are two particularly um, notable things that happen in connection with Jesus's birth. One of them is Jesus, uh, Joseph rather, has gone to to fetch a midwife. And as he's trying to do that, um, time seems to stop. And for a moment, it's like everything in the world stands still. He's watching people and like they're eating and they're putting their hands to their mouths. And he's watching sheep that are lapping up water at a stream and their tongues are frozen and birds are frozen in the sky. And so this time stop like happens. Everything in the world just stops to commemorate the birth of God's son. And then it resumes and time starts going forward again. But he perceives this. Uh, so his consciousness is still operating during the time during the otherwise time stop. And then also 
Jesus is miraculously transported out of Mary's womb. And um, so she experiences no childbirth. And this is like a second century document. This is from the mid second century. So this has it's very early. We have an even earlier one. It's not a gospel, but it's an early Christian writing called the um, called the Ascension of Isaiah that also has a, a version of an account of Jesus's birth where basically Joseph and Mary are at home and the there is this great light that fills uh, the room where they are. And then Jesus appears in Mary's, you know, like outside of Mary's womb and her womb is, you know, like it was before. She's no longer pregnant. And so Jesus seems to just pass through her womb in this wave of light. Um, and so, uh, and that is, a, that is actually written, that document, the Ascension of Isaiah is written uh, based on internal evidence around the year 68. So um, it's, it, I'm sorry, 67 AD. So it's remarkably early. And so you did have these miraculous birth traditions uh, that were in the first century and in the second century and so forth. And Chris is asking, could they be explained by a Bose-Einstein condensate, also known as an Einstein-Bose condensate? And I should explain what that is. So people are familiar with at least three traditional states of matter, solid, liquid, and gas. Um, so, you know, like water, it can be solid, like when it's ice, it can be liquid, like when it's in your cup, or it can be gas when it's, uh, when it's uh, coming out of the spout of a tea kettle. Well, there's also a fourth state of matter, uh, which corresponds to one of the classical four elements. You know, you have earth, uh, water and, and air as classical four elements. That's solid, liquid, and gas. But then the fourth classical element is fire. And fire is a state of matter called a plasma, um, where you have um, the atoms are so excited that they're f like not only like gaseous, but they're exchanging electrons between each other and so forth in this really dynamic way. And, um, and so plasma is a fourth state of matter. And then there are additional states of matter that scientists have figured out uh, could exist. And in some cases, we verified that they can that they do exist. And one of those is the is a known as a Bose-Einstein condensate. It was proposed in the early 20th century by Albert Einstein and a colleague. And it was later we made them in a lab fairly recently, actually. So we now have made Bose-Einstein condensates as a fifth state of matter. So what are they? Well, basically, if you cool matter down towards close to absolute zero, quantum mechanical effects will take over that will cause a bunch of different atoms to become quantum mechanically linked in such a way that they are governed by a single wave function and act, in essence, as if they're like a giant superatom. So it kind of blends the, uh, uh, blends the different atoms together quantum mechanically. And then when you raise the temperature again, it falls apart and you get different atoms, um, individual atoms once more. So could this explain... Uh, some of the things we read about in these apocryphal gospels regarding Jesus's birth. Well, um, so as you approach absolute zero, 
time slows, uh, you know, stuff, stuff slows down. Uh, heat is a measure of, uh, of kinetic energy um, in the form of the vibrations of the individual atoms. And that slows down. And, you know, when things freeze, when they get cold, they stop moving as fast. And we've got a time stop reported in the infancy gospel of James. Um, also, and this is more what I think Chris was thinking about. If you have uh, if you have a Bose-Einstein condensate form between different groups of matter, it kind of acts like one. And quantum mechanically, you can have things like electron tunneling happen, where you have an electron that seems to pass through a solid barrier, and you've got Jesus passing through Mary's womb, and um, and you know. And that's kind of like quantum tunneling, maybe. Uh, so it's an interesting idea, but I don't think that it's ultimately the explanation. Um, now, in the first place, there's a literary issue, which is well, there are two literary issues. One is these apocryphal gospels and apocryphal accounts are not necessarily accurate to begin with, although the, they are very early. And so they may contain genuine traditions uh, that are that, you know, are reliable. But we have to be careful there. It's also clear, though, that this is not what's in the, the idea of a Bose-Einstein condensate is not what's in the author's mind because they didn't have the concept before the 20th century. And so certainly the writer was not trying to communicate that um, that this involved Bose-Einstein condensates. Um, but could it anyway? Well, God can miraculously suspend the laws of nature and do anything he wants. So I can't say it's logically impossible that um, that a Bose-Einstein condensate could have been involved in these phenomena. But I don't think it's likely because one of the things about Bose-Einstein condensates is in order to create them, you need to freeze things down to almost absolute zero. And if you freeze things down to almost absolute zero, you would kill everybody. And so, um, you know, Mary didn't die all the things that Joseph saw, the sheep and the people eating lunch and the birds in the sky, they didn't all die. And so um, so that would suggest it was not a Bose-Einstein condensate, even if you say those phenomena actually happened. Um, also, I have a question uh, of a theological nature about what this would involve if Jesus passed through Mary's womb due to a Bose-Einstein condensate. Um, presumably, and this is interesting because it parallels questions that were actually discussed in the Middle Ages, like, so if Jesus's body uh, dies and his soul, his human soul, leaves, is it still Jesus's body? Or is it just a corpse? Well, Actually, you, we got an infallible definition on this one, and it's still Jesus's body um, that was dealt with at uh, at a at one of the medieval councils. But a similar thing applies here. If you've got uh, the matter in Jesus's body, and you uh, and the matter of you know her womb, and you reduce that to a Bose-Einstein condensate, even if it doesn't kill everybody, um, is it Jesus's body anymore? If it's become quantum mechanically linked with other matter that is not part of Jesus's body and that it all becomes effectively one big 
superatom, one big quantum mechanical phenomenon. And it seems to me that there's a strong, there would be a strong theological argument. It ceases to be Jesus's body if it becomes so linked with other stuff that it's really not a human body anymore. It's really a single quantum mechanical thing that's functioning like a giant superatom. And so I think there would also, in addition to the practical problem of getting that close to absolute zero would kill everybody, there's also a theological problem of, um, of, of it wouldn't be Jesus's body anymore passing through the womb. But we'll have we'll have additional information um, on the we'll have links to where you can find out more about the infancy gospel of James and also Bose-Einstein condensates. Very interesting. I think I got most of that. <laughs> Actually, it was a very good explanation. Our next, Thank you. Our next question comes from Julia Ashley, who says, uh, think about Adam and Eve cast from Eden having a knowledge of good and evil. The world is so polarized about race, science, politics, etc. How can we disagree on what is good and bad? Have we lost that knowledge of good and evil? Maybe we need to consume more apples. Well, it's certainly true that human uh, knowledge has been uh, damaged as a result of original sin. And that's sometimes referred to as if you want the fancy philosophical and theological term for it, that's the noetic effects of sin. Uh, noetics is connected with the mind. Um, and that's why uh, Edgar Mitchell, the former astronaut who became very interested in parapsychology, founded the Institute for Noetic Sciences, which was to study psychic phenomena. Well, uh, noetic also just refers to the mind. The Greek word is nous for mind. And um, and uh, so the damage that's done to our minds and darkens our intellects when it comes to making moral judgments is part of the noetic effects of original sin. Now, we should point out that Genesis never says it's an apple. It's just a fruit. Um, and I actually had a, a friend from Lebanon, so he's from the Middle East. And when he came to America and heard Americans referring to the forbidden fruit, the as an apple, he's like, he just exploded laughing. It's like, that's like saying they, they fell because they ate a French fry. You know, it's, it, and indeed it's, it's traditional in, in, in Western culture to depict it as an apple, but Genesis never actually says that in terms of, should we, if we had access to the fruit of the tree of knowledge, should we eat more of it? Well, maybe, but, um, I don't know. Hair of the dog may not always be the best strategy. Could make things worse. <laughs> Didn't work out too good the first time. Um, on the other hand, uh, good news is that there is a basis in human nature for a knowledge of good and evil. And St. Paul actually talks about that. Uh, if you want to look at it, it's in Romans chapter two, where he talks about how um, God has put his law even in the hearts of Gentiles. And so that's why their consciences will uh, at times accuse them of doing wrong, but also excuse them and say, no, 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 you did the right thing in this case. And so um, he, St. Paul says that even Gentiles who've never heard the law of Moses, they still have God's law written in their hearts, even if it's in an imperfect form because it's been damaged by original sin. So the good news is, well, it actually is written into human nature that we have a knowledge of good and evil. And actually, historically, we're on a good path. Um, people 
and this is explored by, I mean, it comes as a surprise to a lot of people because we have a, a, a kind of hindsight bias cognitive bias that says, oh, things were so much better in the past. Actually, no, things were horrible in the past. And they are much, much, much better today. And this is something that's uh, explored by um, the cognitive scientist and linguist Steven Pinker in his book, The Better Angels of Our Natures, where he shows how if you look at the empirical data across thousands of years and then hundreds of years and then just decades the trend in human history is towards greater freedom and liberty and less violence and more compassion. And so actually, uh, even though obviously we have problems today, and even though we do have a lot of bad polarization today in American society, um, the trend line historically is actually positive. And so maybe the current divisiveness is um, is something that is temporary. It certainly doesn't have to be. I mean, it, the way it is, even a few decades ago, people were a lot less polarized than they are now. And that gives us hope that a few decades from now, we may have found a way to overcome this. Um, but the key to doing that, as always, is charity. Uh, being uh, being willing to be loving to other people and to consider their viewpoints respectfully and and not be so polarizing. And that's a big part of what we're about here on Mysterious World. That's right. Uh, this next one comes from Anonymous, who says, uh, Mysterious World is one of my favorite programs, which covers TV, movies, podcasts, and news outlets. And I appreciate your honesty, perspective, and charity. Thank you. I was wondering if it's a sin to ask for a sign from God, angels, or saints. Is it tempting God? Also, I was most certainly haunted last year. It took me months or years to see it was supernatural and not natural. And I refused to speak to it, even though it would make its presence known to me while I was praying, among other times, because of the danger that it might be a demon. What would have been the issue if I spoke to it and it was a demon? Miraculously, a priest offered to help me. I did not ask him before he offered. He seemed to just know. During COVID, when no one else was making house calls, and he delivered it. It disappeared three weeks later. The whole experience was awful, but I have compassion for that entity who seemed stuck in my 1937 house. I did my best to ignore it for so long, and now I try to remember to pray for it in hopes it will pray for me. Thanks again. So I've had some additional contact with our anonymous correspondent here, and I'm aware of some additional factors uh, regarding these experiences that cast a bit of a different light on what was going on. But I wanted to answer the this inquiry as written because it sheds light on some interesting principles. Um, the first one is that uh, so there is a question of of uh, is it testing God to ask for a sign? And the answer is no, uh, not by itself. That's something we discussed last episode, last week in episode or at the time of recording. Um, yeah. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey pre-recording stuff makes things interesting. Listen to episode 208 if you on time travel prayer, if you want more on the uh, on on what testing God means um, that. 208 may or may not be out at the time you're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in 208, we discuss um, we discuss the issue. And as long as you're like not threatening God that I'm not going to believe in you or I'm not going to believe you love me if you don't do a miracle right now, as long as that's not the attitude you're taking, as long as you're just saying, Lord, it would really help me if you give me a sign. You know, that's fine. That's not testing God. 
Um, and, and so that's okay. Now, obviously, miracles are uncommon. So don't expect that you're definitely going to get one because maybe you will and maybe you won't. But um, but asking for help from God, whether it's in the form of evidence or a miracle or something, that's totally fine. Um, in terms of speaking with an apparent spirit that is manifesting in your home, well, it could, of course, it could be a demon. It could be an angel. Angels can sometimes be scary. I mean, notice what the first thing that angels tend to say when they show up is, don't be afraid, you know, and so they can be scary and sometimes cause plagues and stuff like that. Um, but uh, also, um, you know, saints can appear. And according to Thomas Aquinas, as we talked about in episodes uh, 105 and 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult, Aquinas is of the opinion that, you know, not only can saints appear to us, but souls in purgatory can appear to us and even damned souls if God wants it, can appear to us, um, then there, although most of the historical accounts are either saints or souls in purgatory. And then there may be spirits that God has created that we don't know anything about. So all kinds of things can appear. Um, the question is, can you speak to them when they show up? And I've run into people uh, like our anonymous correspondent who have been under the impression that they shouldn't that you shouldn't talk to a spirit. And I don't know why, I don't know why you would think that. Um, I, I mean, it's never forbidden in the Bible um, or in church documents, I suppose. That, I mean, maybe there's, maybe there are some people out there spreading the idea, oh, you don't want to talk to a spirit if it shows up. But I, that's not been the historical attitude as far as I can tell. Instead, uh, it, it, there's been an encouragement to engage if a spirit shows up, because otherwise, how are you going to know what kind of spirit this is? Um, you know, I mean, it may announce itself and say, hi, I'm the angel Gabriel. But even then, you need to test it. I mean, that's what we're told in um, in. Uh, in St. John's writings is test the spirits. Don't always believe them uh, because some of them are lying. And St. Paul also has information in first Corinthians about testing the spirits. So um, the, the idea of what to do if a spirit is showing up is test it, you know, find out about it. And that's going to mean talking to it. So there's no barrier to talking to a spirit. If it shows up, you need to, I would say you need to do your own little para. And you may want to consult a professional parapsychologist, but you want to do your own little paranormal field investigation and say, OK, who are you? What do you want? Uh, what evidence can you show me that what you're saying is true? And, you know, be open minded, but also use critical thinking. It's like St. Paul said, test everything and hold fast to what's good. But be aware that there's also bad out there. And so I wouldn't have any hesitancy if a spirit started manifesting to start quizzing it and 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 trying to figure out what I could. And it might very well turn out that it's a soul in purgatory that needs some help. And I'd be happy to pray for it afterwards or provide whatever other kind of assistance I could. Colleen Cavi uh, writes, if Judas's portrayal of Jesus was necessary for the passion and crucifixion to occur, and Jesus knew this, why did he say it would have been better if Judas was never born? Was Judas's portrayal not necessary? This is almost always always this has always been almost a brain teaser for me. Thank you. Love your show. OK, so um, so I guess we need to distinguish. We need to ask a question when Jesus says it would have been better 
if if the man who betrays him had not been born. Better for whom? If Judas's betrayal was necessary, it would not have been better for the world if Jesus hadn't been if Judas hadn't been born. Instead, it would be better for Judas if he hadn't been born, because Judas in betraying Jesus is committing a really grave sin. And that sin would send him to hell if he didn't repent. And obviously going to hell is not a good thing. It would be better not to be born. And so I, th- I think all that Jesus is saying is that it would, be, it would have been better for Judas not to be born, not that it would have been better for people in general if Judas were not born. Um, God, of course, knew by his foreknowledge, Judas's free will choice to betray Jesus, and he incorporated that choice into his plan. But Judas still made it by free will. And so, uh, I mean, he was influenced by the devil, but he still had fundamental human freedom. And so he's still responsible for what he did. Good news. Oh, I should say, This is similar in a way to just how if you've got a teenager that you're raising, you may have a pretty good idea. You may foresee what your teenager is going to freely choose to do in some situation where he's you you know he's going to misbehave. But since he's doing it by his even though you can foresee it, it's still his free will. You're not forcing him to do that. And so that's kind of like Judas. Judas freely chooses to betray Jesus. And God foresees that and incorporates that fact into his plan without forcing Judas to do it. So the question, well, what if Judas had used his free will another way? What would have happened then? Well, we don't know um, because we're not told. And in some ways, it's unknowable exactly what would have happened. But notice that, um, that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, had already been plotting Jesus's death. If you want to read about that, you can look at John 11, where um, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And it's such an amazing miracle that all kinds of people are believing in Jesus now. And the Sanhedrin is very concerned. And they say, like, if he goes on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. And then the Romans, he's going to start a war because they think he's a political messiah that's going to try to kick out the Romans. And so he's going to start a war and um, the Romans are going to come in and stomp us and destroy our our house, our holy, our, our temple, you know, God's house. And they don't want that to happen. So that's when they start plotting in John's gospel, the death of Jesus. And that's before they make contact with Judas. So the Sanhedrin was already planning to put Jesus to death before Judas was in the picture. And as a result, if Judas had noped out on the whole let's betray the Messiah thing, they might have gotten to Jesus some other way. So the next question comes from Joe Terzos, who writes, what do you think about bilocation? Padre Pio is said to have done this, but how strong is the evidence for it happening? And is there any other credible claims of bilocation? Okay, so bilocation, for people who may not be familiar, is a, a phenomenon where someone is reported to be in two places at once, or at least to appear to be two places at at once. And it takes different forms. It's an active study of in, it's an active subject of interest, both in the religious community and in the paranormal community. Um, so you have religious bilocation reports and you have paranormal bilocation reports. And I'm working on an episode where we'll talk about both of those. Um, but for now, 
Um, there are credible claims of bilocation, uh, including of Padre Pio. In fact, his first report, so Padre Pio was a Capuchin uh, saint and mystic who lived in the 20th century. And in the early 1900s, when he was just 17 years old, he had his first bilocation experience. And the thing is, he documented it. Like he wrote about it and as because he wasn't even a priest yet. He was just he was like a novice in his monastery or whatever the monk equivalent of a novice is. And um, and he wrote it down and gave it to his superiors and they kept it in their archives for years. And then later, the people that Padre Pio encountered when on this first bilocation got in contact with him. And they were able to confirm the story from their ends, and they got interviewed about it and so forth. So actually, that particular bilocation of Padre Pio, which happened, like I said, when he was only 17 years old, that's very well documented. And there are other documentations, including going back in, among the ancient Greeks. Um, they had accounts of bilocation happening as well. And in the paranormal community, there are instances where it happens. It comes apparently in different forms. Uh, sometimes there will kind of like ghost perceptions do um, the um, you know, sometimes people will have a feeling that they're sensing a presence, but they don't have any sensory experience of it. They just I'm feeling there's a presence here. And then sometimes they will have some sensory impressions of a ghost uh, but they're un, they're they're uh, they're kind of fuzzy and indistinct. Like they'll see this shape of somebody, but it's kind of fuzzy and indistinct. And then they have, um, or I should say, before we get to that stage, there's a stage where someone like has sees a ghost in their mind's eye. You know, they're not seeing anything with their physical eyes, but you know they they have an image that's stuck in their mind's eye, and they perceive that as a ghost. And then. A step up from that is they're starting to have what feels to them like actual sensory experiences, but they're unclear, like they're seeing a kind of misty shape or a, a transparent shape or something like that. And then kind of at the top of the ghost encounter spectrum, they're thinking they're seeing a person. They don't know it's a ghost. They just think, oh, there's my friend so-and-so, and they don't realize so-and-so has died. And so that's kind of the top level where, as far as they know, they're seeing someone with their physical eyes when really there's no physical person there. And they may even go and touch them and feel, you know, feel them with their hand, even though there's no physical person there. And bilocation seems to work like that. Uh, you have instances where people would see Padre Pio, for example, and say, oh, there's this priest, and they wouldn't think anything about it. Um, you know, it's not like he was a transparent priest or anything. It's just this is like type one fully sensory experience. Oh, there's this priest I don't know. And later on, they find out it was Padre Pio and he was located somewhere else when they saw him. Then you have other encounters with Padre Pio where he's some people are seeing him and others are not. And so at the same encounter. So, like, there's a famous um, story where um, one of the um, one of Padre Pio's associates was having a meeting with some people that knew Padre Pio, and he knows Padre Pio is back at the monastery, but they the the people he's meeting with start gossiping 
And they're, so they're kind of trash talking some people they know who aren't there. And one of them suddenly says, Padre Pio has an angry face. <laughs> and and they quickly reverse course and start talking up these people. It's like <laughs> Padre Pio has a calm face now. Um, and so that was an instance where this person knew that Padre Pio wasn't really with them. I mean, physically with them, but was still perceiving him in some way and felt the need to report that to the others. And so there's different kinds of bilocation. And in terms of what explains it, I mean, there are ways whereby God can bend space time and make something present in more than one location at a time. But it seems actually, if you if you go back and you read what Catholic theologians have historically said about this, many of them have said bilocation, and this is not universal, so this varies from one theologian to another. But if you look at people like St. Thomas Aquinas, they'll say, really, how we should understand these bilocations are in terms of images, it's not full physical presence. It's, it's someone seeing a mental image that maybe they do or don't recognize as, as a mental image, but they're seeing a mental image of somebody by God's grace or, you know, through this miraculous process, they're seeing this person, or maybe it's like an, a temporary body, but it's not the same as their physical body. It's like the aerial, what the medievals would call aerial bodies that angels could knit together for themselves as a kind of temporary body and then would dissolve. Um, so at least the way these theologians have understood by location, it, it may be, it's not really the person's full physical body. It's either a temporary body or it's a mental image or some, or a mental impression that someone is present, even if they're not seen. So there's kind of a spectrum there. And we'll be talking about all that in, uh, in a future episode. So it should be of interest both to uh, religious listeners and to listeners in the paranormal community. Uh, the next question comes from Peter Epps, who says, I know cryptozoology has come up before, but as someone who grew up on strained efforts to defend young Earth under the, under the rubric of scientific creationism, I remember hoping some of the claims of Kent Hovind would hold up. To put it in the form of a question, are there any of these claims that hold up in their own terms, disregarding the inferences drawn from them? Well, we'll have a lot more on cryptozoology in the future. I've, I'm currently researching various episodes on it, and some uh, cryptozoological claims have more credibility th than others. For example, we've mentioned we mentioned in our Drop Bears episode a uh, a creature that is known to have existed until I believe the 1930s, uh, when the last one died in a zoo because someone like forgot to to do the thing that would have kept it alive. Um, and, but it's a creature known as a Tasmanian tiger or a Tasmanian wolf or a thylacine. And there are reports that actually thylacines are still out there in the wild, that there's like a small breeding population of them that is currently under the radar, but occasionally people see one. And we will have a uh, uh, an episode devoted to thylacines in the future. But among cryptozoological claims, the idea that thylacines are still out there, uh, that they haven't really all died off, I think is is one of the more credible ones. I think it's quite possible. Um 
I'm not aware of any claims by Kent Hovind that I would regard as likely. I haven't studied them in detail, unfortunately. But we will be covering uh, more cryptozoological issues, including thylacines in the future. I would like to point out that the recent episode of another StarQuest show called Let's Science, they discussed efforts and scientific uh, claims that they might be possible to bring back the thylacine uh, using yeah. uh, DNA uh, things like in Jurassic Park. And what could possibly go wrong with that? But uh, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Well, fortunately, thylacines aren't quite as threatening as T-Rexes or Velociraptors. <laughs> That's true. Um, but yeah, no, and I plan on talking about that in the show as well, because I'm aware of these efforts. And I think one way or another, we're, we're going to have thylacines in the future, either because we find them in the wild or because we bring them back using DNA. Or a little of both. Uh, so check yeah. out uh, Let's Science at sqpn.com slash science. Our next question comes from Matthew Burris, who writes, uh, it seems that psychedelic drugs have received more attention in the past few years. Those who have taken one psychedelic called NN-dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, report interacting with strange beings that are sometimes referred to as machine elves. Some even compare interacting with these beings to near-death experiences. Are these beings real? Are they demonic? What can we say about them? Well, we will be talking about the psychedelic machine elves in the future, and people who use various substances like DMT do regularly report, I mean, not always, but frequently report encountering uh, these beings while they're high that uh, we don't normally see around us, and and they can take different forms. Sometimes they've been compared to Fabergé eggs, you know, the really fancy uh, eggs, uh, artifacts, <laughs> objet d'art. Um, sometimes they've been compared to like self-dribbling jewel-covered basketballs. Um, and they are reported in taking other forms yet. They frequently are reported as being friendly and curious about the humans who have suddenly, suddenly shown up in psychedelic space. Uh, they sometimes try to teach people things, how to do things in the psychedelic space. Occasionally, they're reported as being mischievous or hostile, um, but uh, they they don't seem to have any one mode of behavior, although the most common mode of behavior seems to be curious and helpful. Um, and and by they've been reported by by various um, psychonauts. Uh, to use the term, and uh, and they and have been dubbed machine elves, or and they have other names as well. In terms of what their what their level of reality is, well, they could be just pure hallucinations, like you know the people we see in dreams are normally not real; they're a product of our subconscious. And so, um, if someone is high on DMT or something, then um, it could just be the subconscious part of their mind is producing this, just like dreaming. And so maybe these are just dreams. On the other hand, um, it is possible that because dream, uh, psychedelic substances do affect your perceptions, maybe there maybe the psychedelic substance is altering one's perceptions in a way that allows one to perceive something that you couldn't normally perceive. And so maybe we do have, you know, other intelligent creatures living around us on another plane that we don't normally have access to. In fact, 
We do. We call them angels and demons. And maybe these are angels, maybe they're demons, maybe they're something else that we just don't know about, but that also lives around us in a way we normally can't access. And maybe this, uh, these substances allow us to access perceptually uh, these beings. Um, so that's, that's a possibility. Um, you might wonder, well, how would that work? Well, so, you know, angels are pure intellects. They're telepath, So they're going to communicate with each other telepathically. And maybe if, you know, if humans have a, if humans have a telepathic ability that's latent, if the drugs can turn on that telepathy, maybe you could perceive angels around you or other creatures around you that have intellects. So it might be telepathic communication. On the other hand, there's also another possibility, which is that the that these machine elves are not completely illusory, but also not independent. So maybe they are, and I'll, I guess I'll perhaps I should proceed a little further and get back to that possibility. But there's a kind of in-between possibility between it's just a hallucination and it is an independent entity. There's a question that you would have of how could we find out if these things are real and the as opposed to just imagination and the um, the logical way to do that is to my mind is to test the spirits and and start quizzing them and say, OK, um, hi, Mr. Machine Elf. Can you tell me something that I don't know, but that I can verify later on? Like maybe he can predict the future or maybe he can tell me where some hidden object is or something, you know, some piece of information that I don't have, but that I can later verify. And just like if I said, Dom, can you tell me something I don't know, like something about your home, maybe that I've never been to and you could describe it and then I could verify that later. Well, in the same way, if you talk to a spirit, including a machine elf, and it can produce verifiable information, that suggests it's not just a hallucination. There's something more going on. Similarly, if you could say, if you could get the machine elves to, uh, to affect the environment in a way that people who are not currently high could verify, like if you say, um, Mr. Machine Elf uh, got high in this laboratory here and we've got a temperature sensor over there. Could you make that temperature sensor go up in temperature and can then um, then that would be a sign that you're communicating with something. It's not just at least it's not just a hallucination. So that would so having the ability to get information that you don't have or affect objects that you're not touching, but that can be verified by people who are not high. Those would be signs that you may be in communication with an actual entity. Um, on the other hand. And this is straight out of parapsychology, maybe not. Because there is what's been called the super psi hypothesis that proposes that all of us are using psychic things all the time to navigate our environment 
And if the drug has turned on your psychic abilities, maybe that's what's happening. Maybe you're you are hallucinating a machine elf. And if it gives you information that you don't naturally know, maybe you're picking up that information psychically from somewhere else. Or if you've got a temperature sensor like a thermistor and you are and it affects the inf- the temperature of the thermos that the thermistor is reg- registering maybe it's not the machine elf maybe it's you hmm. maybe you're psychokinetically doing that and so it's always really hard when in parapsychology to distinguish is this a spirit or is it super psi you know is it really another entity or is the person himself doing this and not realizing it because he's doing it subconsciously. But at least those are the kinds of tests that one would want to do to investigate our machine elves, anything more than just mere hallucinations. Sarah Morell asks, I realize we don't know exactly when human beings are ensouled, but given that we believe life begins at fertilization, it seems to me that that's when ensoulment occurs as well. Yep. Given given that, I really think that when identical twins are formed by the split of the embryo, that the soul splits as well. What are your thoughts on this? Is there anything theologically wrong with the idea that identical twins share a soul the same way they share DNA? I have fraternal twins myself, but I've always found the subject of twins to be highly interesting. Thanks. So there are a few. This is an area that the church doesn't have a teaching on, and so we're left to to speculate, um, there are a few parameters. Um, after the split, the mono, my, monozygotic twins, that's twins that came from a single zygote, definitely have separate souls. It's not like you've got a single soul that's animating two different bodies. You're going to, if you've got Bob and Bill are identical twins, Bob has a soul, Bill has a soul. Um, they're not like, there's not, they're not like a soul collective, like a, spiritual Borg or something. <laughs> um, so, and similarly, so that's one parameter. After the split, definitely two souls, two complete souls. It's not like one of them has half of a soul and the other has half of a soul. It's also uh, a parameter would be when you have, since the intellectual soul is the form of the body, if you have a single zygote, so you've got one zygote, it's going to have one soul. So somehow you, it's not like it has two intellectual souls. It's just got one. So what happens when the zygote splits? Well, one possibility, which I think is perhaps what Sarah is envisioning here or something close to what Sarah is envisioning is that when the body splits, the soul essentially splits in a kind of quantum way. And when I say quantum, I mean that in the sense of souls are irreducible units. You can't have half of a soul or you know, three quarters of a soul. Souls are are binary. Either there is a soul there or there's not a soul there. And so you could have a soul, a single soul that like duplicates itself and 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 then, you know, is the form of the bodies of, of Bob and Bill. Um, so that's possible. Um, it would require souls to be quantum phenomena that can split in that way so that you have essentially two identical souls at that point that then proceed to um, to develop along with the bodies as one's you know soul changes over time depending on what you do um, another possibility 
is that you have this initial zygote that gets to a certain point, and then it tears itself in half and dies. So that the two resulting twins, although they share the DNA with the original united zygote, that, got, that zygote got torn apart. And if you tear a body apart, you don't have the same body anymore. So on this view, you'd have a single zygote with a single soul, and it gets to a certain point, and then when its body tears apart, you no longer have the same body, and thus its soul is gone. Its soul goes to heaven or, you know, wherever such souls go. Um, and at that moment, you have effectively two new conceptions. And those two new conceptions each get a new, a newly created soul. And that gives you Bob and Bill. Another possibility is that you've got the united zygote and part of it tears off at the split, but part of its physical form tears off at the split, but the rest of it still has continuity with the original zygote sufficient that it's really the same thing. It's like you it's like you've got a zygote that spits off a part of itself. And in that case, if there is continuity between Bob and the original zygote, then Bob would have had one soul all the way through it. And when he spit off Bill's physical body, um, that was effectively a new conception and God created a brand new soul for Bill. So there are several possibilities here. And currently, the church doesn't have a teaching on which of these is right. So it's a matter for further uh, philosophical, theological and medical study to figure out because we need to we need to know more about exactly how does this splitting happen you know uh, is there a reasonable basis for saying one of the twins is in more continuity with the original zygote than the other twin is as in the last example mm, that's lots to think about uh, the next question comes from Christopher Hagen, who writes, Dom and Jimmy, thanks so much for producing the show. It's my favorite podcast, and I listen to it daily with my three boys on the way to school, although some of the true crime episodes I shield their ears from, even though I still enjoy those. That's why we don't do those a whole lot, because right. we want to make it accessible for parents and kids. Right. Uh, I haven't listened to every episode yet, so I'm not sure if you've covered this, but how about the Bible code? Is there really a skip code found in one of the Hebrew copies of the Old Testament? Okay, so uh, we have not yet covered the Bible code, though we very well may do so in the future. Um, what a what a skip code is, for people who may not be aware, is a kind of code where in order to decode the message, so you have a block of text in front of you, and you uh, you skip so many letters to get to the next correct letter in the code. For example, you might say, this is a skip code five, in which case you take every fifth letter and you skip the ones in between and just take every fifth letter and put them together. And that's the message that you're supposed to get when you decode it. Um, so there is this claim and it's it's been around for a while uh, in in I mean, it's it's been around for a, a while. But there is this claim that in the Bible. There is there are skip codes and that if you either in the original language or even in English, if you skip so many letters, you'll be able to get a message that is prophetic or something and like that refers to 9-11 or some other significant world event or person. Um, 
And there, there was a series of books uh, that came out a few years ago called The Bible Code and variations on that. And for a while, they were very popular. Um, but basically, this is like a word search game that you would see in a newspaper where you, okay, if we put the letters in this grid and we skip these and we die, we can get this diagonal or this vertical word or something like that. And, and it's, it's it, it, the problem is this is an unreliable methodology. First of all, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests this is the case, that God put these in there. Now, that wouldn't mean that he didn't. You know, God could put messages people are not aware of in the Bible. You would need an, an accurate uh, um, manuscript in order to be able to find them. And that's a problem because over time, even though the meaning of the Bible has not changed, scribes down through history do make spelling mistakes. And they'll invert word order and things like that. And that's going to mess up your ability to play Bible code. Um, so it would be arbitrary which manuscript you would pick to do this with. But you also, if God really did hide messages in these, um, you would want to check that by saying, OK, well, if my methodology is the right one for detecting God's hidden messages in his inspired word in the Bible, is am am I getting false positives or not? You know, am I detecting messages that aren't there? And one of the ways of of investigating that would be by using the same methodology to non-inspired documents where God would not have presumably hidden messages, hidden messages. And if your methodology is um, is both picks up hidden messages in the Bible and hidden messages in non-inspired works, then your methodology is too sensitive to hidden messages and you're getting a bunch of false positives. So what do we find when we use Bible code-like methodologies on the Microsoft user license agreement? <laughs> we find hidden messages in it. Mm. And what do we find when we use the Bible code methodology on books like Moby Dick? We find hidden messages in it. And so the uh, the methodology appears to be oversensitive and unreliable. Also, the results that it returns are highly subjective. Um, you know, uh, it, it, they're, they're very impressionistic. It's not like you're getting complete sentences from God that says Indira Gandhi will die in the 1980s by an assassin's bullet. Instead, you'll get something like on a vertical axis, you'll get I Gandhi. And then on the horizontal axis, it'll intersect with the fatal deed. Okay, that could be anyone named Gandhi getting killed. How do you know it's right. not Mohandas Gandhi? He got done in by a fatal deed, too. Um, so, you know, he could say, well, I, Gandhi, got done in by a fatal deed. So that could refer to either Indiris or Mohandas. Um, and so it's just an unreliable impressionistic methodology. And, and to my mind, it's a waste of time. Um, but we will have more on uh, the Bible code as well as uh, in in the further resources, just as we'll have more on these other mysteries we've been talking about. So I haven't listed all the further resources we have, but definitely check them out. Uh, John Henry uh, asked us next question. What are pagan gods? Dead idols of wood and metal? Fallen angels? Made up legends based on folklore and stories of famous ancestors? Some combination of them all? 
uh, some combination of them all. This isn't all of the above. And we had an episode on God and the gods a while back. I forget the exact number, but um, we had one on God and the gods that talked about aspects of this, uh, there are additional aspects to consider. And uh, for a particular resource that I think you might find helpful, I would suggest reading the Book of Wisdom, chapters 13 and 14. Uh, In chapters 13 and 14 of the Book of Wisdom, the author meditates on the origins of, of, of pagan gods and idol worship. And he, he points to a number of different possibilities or a number of different explanations, which he regards as, well, this explains some and that explains some. Um, One of the possibilities he mentions is the personification of the forces of nature to where he says that, you know, some people look at the beauty of nature and the stars and things like that and say, ah, these must be the gods that rule the world. And he actually, so we we personify things like the stars or the storms or the sun or things like that, because it's amazing and impressive. And you think, oh, well, that must be a god. And he actually says, the author, the people who do this may not be that blameworthy because um, they are at least recognizing the greatness of the creator's creation. It really is great. Storms are impressive. The sun is impressive. The stars are impressive. And they're recognizing the beauty and impressiveness of God's creation. They're just stopping short of getting to the real creator. So maybe they're not so blameworthy for doing that. But then he says, okay, uh, now let's consider the case of a guy who is a, a carpenter and he's got this tree branch because he's writing from Egypt and there is not a lot of good wood in Egypt. They had to import it from Lebanon. Um, but so he's got this tree branch and he's it's a useless bit of leftover after he's made a chair or something. And he decides to make an idol out of it. And he's got us. It's all knotted and gnarled and he's got to carve it and he's got to patch it up and fill in, use red paint to cover over the blemishes and stuff like that. And that's just stupid in the idea of in the mind of the author of Hebrews. This is just a dumb way to find a God. Um, and and he talks about people who like lose relatives and they think of their relatives as gods or they make a statue for a king and they start thinking of the king as a god and stuff like that. And so uh, in addition to what we talked about, uh, which dealt more with the angelic origin of of um, of pagan gods, um, do check out Wisdom 13 and 14 for several additional things that have contributed historically to people's uh, deification of particular uh, entities. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have for questions this time. If, and don't worry, if you asked a patron question and you didn't get an answer this time, we will get to it in the future. Uh, so before we go, Joe, Jimmy, do you have, would you like to list some of the further resources we have on some of the questions you answered today? Well, we'll have uh, links to Wisdom 13 and 14. We'll also have links to information about the Bible Code, including a critique, uh, including a book by uh, evangelical scholar Michael Heiser called The Bible Code Myth. Uh, We will have information on DMT machine elves, also information on thylacines, information on on, uh, bilocation, And we'll have both a link to Wikipedia there talking about the phenomena from a more secular perspective, and then also uh, a link to the Catholic Encyclopedia talking about it so that you can see what theologians 
have said about it historically, like Thomas Aquinas, who we mentioned, but also others. Um, we will have a we will have links to Einstein Bose condensates and the infancy gospel of James, as we mentioned. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this time? Well, since we were talking about uh, Bose-Einstein condensates, which is a state of matter, I thought I'd propose, I thought I would discuss another proposed state of matter, information. Hmm. There are proposals out there that information is itself a state of matter, just like solid, liquid, gas, plasma, and Bose-Einstein condensate. And there are others as well, but information has been proposed as one of them. And um, and so and there's even a test that's being devised or being executed for that has the potential to show whether um, whether information is another state of matter. And this is a fascinating test to give you an, an it may not exactly be this way, but this will give you a sense of it. Um, so if information is really matter, it's going to have mass, you know, just like solid has mass, liquid has mass, gas has mass, plasma has mass, Bose-Einstein condensates have mass. And so information itself would have mass. And that would mean that a hard drive that is full will weigh more than a hard drive that is empty. Hmm. Uh, the 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 amount of mass that information is proposed to have is very very tiny, but we apparently are at the point where it's the predicted amount of mass that information itself would have is is within the sensitivity of the measuring devices we currently are in possession of, and so there is an attempt to do an experiment where essentially, not exactly, but essentially, you weigh a full drive against an empty hard drive and see see if they weigh the same or not. Mm. And if it turns out, and we'll have a link to this also, if it turns out that information is a form of matter and it does have mass, it could be dark matter. Dark matter might just be information. And so we'll have a link about that. Wow. Uh, so now we know what the blockchain is. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> maybe. All right. So that's it from us. Thank you to all our patrons and especially those who submitted questions. You can submit feedback by going to patreon.com slash StarQuest or by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page and leaving some feedback there. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Send a tweet to at mys underscore world. You can leave it in the StarQuest Discord community where there's a special channel just for patrons at sqpn.com slash discord or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at patreon.com slash StarQuest and eventually at sqpn.com slash mysterious when we release this episode to all listeners. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to and supporting Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this patron's question show. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is only possible because of the generosity of our patrons on Patreon. 
If you'd like to support Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and have your questions answered on future shows for patrons, go to sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video editing and animation on this episode. They do really great work, so if you have a need for uh, video editing and animation services, definitely check them out. You can see their work on Mysterious World at YouTube.com slash Jimmy Aiken where we have the video version of the podcast. And while you're there, I am trying to grow my channel, so I'd appreciate it if you subscribe and uh, hit the bell notification so you'll always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or Apologetics or something else. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be talking with one of my parapsychology professors, Lloyd Auerbach, and we're going to be hearing about one of the field investigations that he did in a haunted house in Marin County, California. Uh, this will give you a sense of what a real paranormal field investigation is like, as opposed to the nonsense stuff that you see on ghost hunting shows. And don't worry, this isn't a scary case, but it does have an amazing twist that you will not see coming. So be sure to tune in uh, next time for the case of the Haunted House of Marin County. Oh, excellent. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. My pleasure. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Catholics of Oz. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash oz.